0: Humans have always had a deep-seated desire to be able to control their surroundings. No matter the culture, gender, or religious upbringing, the desire to be able to have some, if only minuscule, amount of control over one's life and surroundings is a universal trait. Whether we are manipulating the environment, decorating a home, or seeking to take charge of our life's direction, all of us like to feel like we are in control of at least one aspect of our lives. There's safety in control, and there can also be power in it as well. Throughout time, we've come up with a wide array of tools to help us take control of our lives, to ensure that we are putting our best foot forward into achieving a desired outcome. One tool that has existed throughout the ages that many have found invaluable is the use of magic. Now, while many write the idea off as mere fantasy, there are many out there who say that magic is real and that it does indeed work. It's something that's even managed to wriggle its way into Western self-help culture, going under names such as the power of thought, intention, and manifesting. The idea behind this practice is that your thoughts and intentions have power, and that they have the ability to alter or even create reality. In essence, whatever you are concentrating the most on, whether positive or negative, you will bring that very thing into your life. Sounds very much like magic, doesn't it? Magic is defined as the natural art of bringing about change into one's life by using the power of one's own thoughts or energies. Throughout most of ancient history, magic was seen as an important part of daily life. For the Egyptians, not only was it an integral part of their religious practices, but also an important part of everyday life. For the Greeks and Romans, magic was used for every purpose under the sun, from ensuring a good harvest to making sure one looked their best. In fact, every single ancient society employed some sort of magical belief system. Magic is just something that goes hand in hand with animism and the connection to the natural world. So how did magic take that turn in history from being that benign part of daily life to turning into something to be feared and combated. It's hard to determine the exact moment, and I suppose it plays along with the slow boil analogy. But the water definitely began to boil in the 15th century. The fear of magic, or rhabdophobia, really caught on during the mid-1400s. This is when hysteria began to take hold of the public and the open and violent persecution of so-called witches began to escalate. Many innocent women, often those who crafted medicines or those who were outspoken and autonomous, were labeled as witches and they endured torture until they could bear it no longer and confessed to being a witch. A confession which they knew led to execution. Part of the reason for this was the intensely patriarchal society, one that during these times believed that women were lesser and should be subservient to men. Any woman who did not bend to the will of a man or who was outspoken and strong was seen as a problem and often labeled a witch. Now, another source for the hysteria was the corrupt religious leaders of the time. You see, back then, priests and bishops, they wielded a healthy amount of power, and even royalty sought favor from and even answered to them. Once any of these men acquired that taste of power, they soon became obsessed with it. As they say, power changes a person and often corrupts. The interesting thing about that type of power is that it often breeds paranoia. Once a person obtains such a level of influence and the comforts that come with it, they soon become paranoid of losing it. It eats away at them and they begin doing all they can to ensure that that power remains theirs. The common way they attempt to secure their power is by convincing the public that they were destined for the position chosen and appointed by God itself. However, even that won't be enough to bring security. They will then need to come up with campaigns, something to unite the people, a common cause. Often, this is done by singling out and vilifying a certain type or group of people, or even manufacturing an enemy. They then can show themselves as a holy leader, purging and saving the world of such unsavory evils, that threaten the morality and the souls of the people. Which leads in to the other way that they keep their power, fear and intimidation. They make people afraid of each other and suspicious of their neighbors. Often, the deepest fear among the people is the fear of becoming the target themselves. It's like living in a constant fight-or-flight mode, And the stress of which can be unbearable some reach the breaking point and deflect their fears onto their neighbors they will find any oddity they can no matter how benign and label it as evidence or in this case witchcraft heck sometimes it's even a handy tool for revenge and manipulation it's this type of environment that breeds hysteria. And that's just what happened. In 1486, things kicked into high gear and the public's fear of magic and witchcraft reached a new and frightening level due to the publication of a German book, Maleus Maleficarum. And I'm sure I mispronounced that one. I don't speak German. Now, the book is known in English as Hammer of Witches. This book, which was written by two prominent German clergymen, was the most concise text ever written on the subject of witchcraft. But it wasn't a friendly historical text. It was a manual, a guide to the proper extermination of witches. It offered guidance and procedures on how to identify, pursue, and interrogate witches. The publication of this text is the exact moment in history when the practice of magic and witchcraft was formally labeled as criminal heresy. Witchcraft was seen as the ultimate crime against God and one which was punishable by death. In fact, The Hammer of Witches states that only death, and preferably death by fire, was the cure for witchcraft, and it was the only way to protect the land from it. The book also named women as the primary practitioners of witchcraft, and it stated that these women were not only using magic, but they were also conspiring with And lusting after the devil. Now, as absurd as all that sounds, this book essentially went viral at an astonishing rate. It played into already existing hysteria, and it added more fuel to the fire, both figuratively and literally in this case. To put things into perspective on just how out of hand things got, for over 160 years, that's from 1500 to 1660, The Hammer of Witches was the top selling book in Europe. The only book that sold more copies during this time period was the Bible. The Hammer of Witches was responsible for the needless and brutal deaths of over 80,000 innocent women. And I find it incredibly perplexing how a religion, whose basic philosophy is be nice to each other, was able to be used and manipulated to incite such horrific acts of violence. Now, it's important to note that not all of those accused and executed for witchcraft were female. There were men who were convicted of witchcraft as well. Though witch fever had pretty much run its course in Europe, witch hunts were still alive and well in America. In fact, by 1692, America was gearing up for its own bout of hysteria. 1692, brought about the infamous Salem Witch Trials. Now, most of us are familiar with the tale of how it started, and we're fairly familiar with the many female victims. But very few of us know that there were also men who were accused and executed for witchcraft during these trials. Giles Corey was one of them. The one thing you need to know about Giles Corey is that he wasn't exactly the most well-loved member of his community. You see, Corey had a bit of an unsavory reputation due to some past misdeeds. He was also a very wealthy member of Salem society, and he seemed to have a knack for buying his way out of trouble, which led him to be a very disliked figure among the mostly poor population of Salem. In 1659, Corey purchased some land and moved along with his wife and daughter to the small community of Salem Village. Being right on the outskirts of town, Corey's farm prospered. And within a few years, he became a wealthy and prominent member of the community. In fact, the community of Salem Village pretty much relied on Corey's farm. Outside of small family gardens, that was pretty much their primary food source. Now, sadly, just two years after Corey had purchased the farm, his wife Martha died suddenly, leaving Corey a widower and single father. However, being a man of such high social status, it wasn't long before he attracted the attention of the eligible ladies of Salem. In 1664, he was once again married. For 12 years, he and his new wife Mary led a very calm and happy lifestyle. But in 1675, that all changed. And Corey would set himself on a path of self-destruction. Now, an important thing to note about Corey is that he was a very self-righteous man. The years of being such a powerful member of the community had certainly went to his head. And he was quick to let everyone in the community know just how much they needed him. It also gave him a bit of self-entitlement. And it even made him feel like he was above the law, which oftentimes he was. He was even known to manipulate shopholders to get better deals and was even accused by some of outright stealing their goods. Now, Corey was also quick to anger and he was known to get into a fair share of scuffles. It's unknown if he had a mood disorder or if he was just a fan of the bottle, but either way, Corey had a reputation for having an unpredictable temper. In 1675, it came to light at just how unhinged he could become. One day, While making his rounds on the farm, he caught his farmhand, Jacob Goodall, stealing apples from the storage shed. Furious by the theft and seeing it as a clear act of betrayal, Corey went into a violent rage. He viciously beat the farmhand, using any object within reach as a weapon. And with one well-placed blow to the head, Jacob Goodall was dead. Corey then cleaned himself up and made his way over to the police station, claiming that during his rounds, he had discovered his beloved farmhand dead. When the police arrived with Corey to the scene, it was quite obvious to everyone in attendance that this was no accident. Corey was accused of murder and a court date was set. There were a variety of witnesses who testified about Corey's temper and his cruel and manipulative tendencies. But the winning testimony was that of John Proctor, who said that he had overheard Corey confessing, perhaps even bragging to others about what he had done. In the end, the court found him guilty. But since Corey was such a high-ranking and wealthy member of society, he didn't receive any jail time. Instead, he was ordered to pay a small fine as reparation to Goodall's family. Now, when word got out how this man had bought his way out of jail and essentially got away with murder, Corey's reputation was ruined. Many saw him as a threat and only tolerated him because they knew the town relied on his farm. This incident even put a strain on his marriage and he and Mary divorced soon after. So it's probably no surprise that when the witch trial fever spread across Salem, Corey soon found himself a target. In 1691, Corey, now 70, was living a very different life. And he thought his troubles from years ago had long since been forgotten. He had a new wife, Martha. Martha was an incredibly kind and patient woman And Martha was able to do what nobody else ever had. She was not only able to keep Corey out of trouble, but she seemed to change his whole personality. He was calmer, happier, kinder. She got him accepted into her church, and it seemed that both were now accepted, possibly even loved members of the community. Then, in 1692, Salem caught witch-hunt fever. And it's one of the most well-documented cases of mass hysteria. At first, Corey and his wife attended the trials and even supported them. In fact, Corey made it a purpose to attend every single trial. However, after a while, Martha who was a very smart lady, began to see through the propaganda and hysteria and she stopped attending. Unfortunately for her, people soon took notice of her absence and Martha soon found herself on trial. Even worse, her own husband turned against her. The main accusation against Martha was about the way that she was able to change her husband. Nobody believed that Corey could change like that just of his own free will. People speculated that she bewitched him, used some sort of magic on him to change him. And even Corey started believing this himself. And he testified against his own wife. It was at this time that the hysteria was reaching its peak and the townsfolk were looking for any excuse at all to label someone a witch. And since Martha had been labeled one, some members of Salem saw this as the perfect opportunity to exact revenge on Corey as well. It seems his misdeeds were not forgotten after all. And soon, he too was on trial. And I probably don't have to tell you that given his previous history, things didn't exactly go well for him. Terrified that anything he said would be used against him, Corey spent most of his trial in silence, refusing to utter a word a tactic which severely backfired on him. In the end, both he and his wife were convicted of witchcraft. Martha was sentenced to hang, while Corey was sentenced to a far slower death. Since Corey had remained mute for the entirety of his trial. He was sentenced to the PN et PNPT, a gruesome method of torture where heavier and heavier rocks were placed upon a person until they either confessed of their misdeeds or died. Nakori knew either way he was going to die. So while awaiting his sentence to be carried out, he filled out his last will and testament and deeded his land to his son-in-laws. Corey knew that no matter how painful the torture would be, he couldn't confess. If he did, the state would seize his land. For three agonizing days, Corey was slowly crushed to death. Heavier and heavier rocks were added on top of him. And each time a new stone was added, he'd shout out, more weight, more weight. The authorities thought Corey was making a mockery of the situation. But in reality, those shouts were more than likely pleads for them to speed up the inevitable. In the end, more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft in Salem, and 20 were executed for it. A quarter of those were men. The fear of magic in history was really twofold. People were afraid of those who practiced, and those who practiced were afraid to do so, lest they be burnt at the stake. The public's attitude towards magic and witchcraft pretty much remained this way until the 1700s. It's then in the 1700s that, for whatever reason, things slowly began to change. In the 1700s, interest in all things esoteric were on the rise, and those who practiced such things Were even found in some very high-ranking positions, such as in the royal court. It's during this time that a lot of the texts, which were foundational to modern-day witchcraft and paganism, were written. Of course, this renewed interest in magic didn't get past the church. And in 1735, English Parliament was persuaded to pass The witchcraft act the witchcraft act made it a crime to practice witchcraft or to believe that any human being was able to possess magical powers of course you can probably guess that didn't deter the rising interest in magic in the least all it did was encourage a surge of secret societies and make the pursuit of such knowledge all the more tantalizing. By the 1900s, perhaps thanks to the popularity of spiritualism, magic was experiencing a revival and gained more attention due to some of the names that were attracted to it. Names such as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Aleister Crowley. While magic had largely been seen as negative during the witch hunt days, magic in itself is seen as neutral. It's not inherently good or bad, though often it's broken down into two different categories, white and black magic or right and left-handed path. Now you might be wondering, if magic itself is neutral, why do we have those two very distinct categories? Why do we break it down as either being strictly good or strictly bad? The main definitive difference between the two is all about the intention cast. For instance, if you are doing spell work to bring about a certain circumstance, like more money in your bank account, into your life, that's considered white magic. However, if you cast a spell to bring about harm to another person, that's considered by many to be black magic. Many modern practitioners of magic will say that you should only ever practice white magic as any black magic you do come back to you that particular belief primarily comes to us from the magical or moral code of wicca wicca was the first time that witchcraft was successfully brought into the mainstream and the belief that magic should only be used for good was really its way of separating itself from the works of aleister crowley now wicca was officially formed in 1954, and it was formed by a very colorful and impish looking fellow by the name of Gerald Gardner. Now Gardner is perhaps one of my favorite weird old guys of history. He was so unlike anyone else during his time. He was utterly fearless about it. He was unashamed to embrace his weirdness. And if you go online, look up Gerald Gardner and take a look at his picture. That pretty much says it all. In 1884, Gardner was born in a very wealthy English family. Now, even though he was the first born from a very young age, it was clear that he wasn't accepted by his parents. Gardner was asthmatic, and throughout his early years, suffered from frequent bouts of bronchitis. Perhaps ashamed of their son's fragile state, by the age of eight, his parents sent him away with his nanny to live on their estate in colonial Malaya. It's here that Gardner's interest in folklore, and especially magic, began to flourish. He spent most of his youth immersing himself in local culture, especially attending shamanic rituals. He was amazed by what he saw, but he was convinced that there was some sort of true spiritual power about them. He also knew that was something he wanted to experience for himself as well. As he grew older, he worked as a civil servant, but he still spent his spare time studying the culture. He soon married and lived quite a happy, comfortable, and for the most part, normal life. In 1936, Gardner retired and moved with his wife back to England. He purchased a lovely and private home with a large garden in the upscale area of Highcliffe. Now, Gardner immediately stood out from his neighbors. He had this shocking white hair that seemed to rise up well above his head. And he had an equally brilliant beard that went well below his chin. It was here in this lovely property where Gardner wished to unwind and let loose. And let loose he did. Gardner, in his later years, had become a nudist. And it turns out that he met many other retirees who enjoyed the same, shall we say, freedoms. Gerald's circle of nudist friends, which included respected members of high society, met weekly at his home, and during the warmer months, enjoyed all natural garden parties. He essentially created his own backyard nudist colony. What's incredibly amusing about this is that Highcliffe was not only a very upscale residential area, but it was also incredibly conservative. So you can imagine the type of gossip that flourished among the neighbors and the shock some would have felt at the idea of so much loose skin flapping about in the evening breeze. Given what you know about Gardner, you wouldn't think that he would have been attracted to such a highly conservative area. But there was a very important reason why he chose the property in Highcliff. It was just outside of New Forest, which had many wonderful forested paths. You see, Gardner was also another type of naturalist. He loved study And being in nature. He felt that nature was sacred, that it held a special energy about it, and he enjoyed spending as much time in it as possible, and as much time not clothed in it as possible. Now despite his busy social schedule, his wonderful forested walks, Gardner still craved more excitement. Now that he was retired, there was nothing holding him back from pursuing all of his interests, including his long-held interest in magic and the occult. He soon began seeking out some of the magical secret societies that he had heard rumors about. He dabbled in Freemasonry, flirted with thelema, and attended a few other societies as well. However, during this time, he hadn't found anything that truly resonated with him. And then, in 1939, Gardner was invited by a friend to attend and observe a ceremony or ritual held by the New Forest Coven, a small coven of self-professed traditional witches that was founded and led by Rosamund Sabine. The coven celebrated what they called the old religion and worshipped the horned god and triple goddess. It was an experience that was completely new to Gardner and it turned out to be quite the turning point in his life. Shortly afterwards, he was officially initiated into the coven and from that moment on, he dedicated himself to what he referred to as the witch cult or what he called Wicca for short. Gardner became intensely interested in taking this magic further. One day in 1940, after being frustrated by his enlistment being rejected by the British military, Gardner began to wonder if it would be possible to use magic to help his country during this desperate time. On a cold autumn night in 1940, the coven gathered together by the seaside to conduct a powerful ritual, one that was meant to keep the Nazis from invading England by sea. They lit a large bonfire, cast their circle, and created what Gardner referred to as the Great Cone of Power. As the energy was raised, it was slowly directed to Germany and to the general area where they believed Hitler to be. When the energy's power had reached its fullest potential, the coven members began to chant the command. You cannot reach the sea. You cannot come. It was said that the ritual was so exhausting for those who had participated in it that a few members of the coven became ill and died shortly afterwards. Now while it's true, a few did die some months afterwards. You must keep in mind that all of the members of the coven were retirement age, and they were also performing the ritual in the nude on a cold and damp autumn night by the seaside. As the Second World War raged on, the British government began keeping a close eye on what they viewed as occult activities. They were fully aware of the Nazis' seeming obsession with the occult, and they kept a close eye on groups at home that practiced the occult, even prosecuting some. During this time, spiritualist and medium Helen Duncan came under investigation and was imprisoned for quite a few years. During these turbulent times, Gardner wasn't the least bit intimidated, as others in his circle had been, and he didn't shy away from practicing magic, especially out in the open. In fact, it only made him more adamant and dedicated to his mission of spreading the word of Wicca. It was during this time that he began writing down and refining the ideas of Wicca. His goal was to make it a cohesive and standalone religion. It's also during this time that Gardner began forming a friendship with another well-known practitioner of magic. Yes, you guessed it, Alistair Crowley. Believe it or not, Gardner actually based quite a bit of his Wiccan writings off of Crowley's work, but there was one major difference between the two. While Crowley believed in the use of both white and dark magic, Gardner only wanted to focus on the light. He wanted to keep it positive. And that's where the major difference between the two falls. And to give you an idea of How much Crowley inspired Gardner. Listen to the two rules. The Thelema Law is, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The Wiccan, read, is, And it harm none, Do what thou wilt. Now Gardner further cemented his idea of positive magic with, The threefold law, which essentially means that whatever energy you put out, whether positive or negative, it will come back to you threefold. During the height of the friendship between Gardner and Crowley, Crowley was aware that he was reaching his final years. He'd not only come to respect Gardner, but he also viewed him as a kindred spirit. They were honestly quite alike in many ways both being incredibly bright personalities in an often dull world during one of their monthly meetups crowley asked gardner if he would be willing to take over his order and be the new voice of the lima though incredibly honored by the sentiment gardner politely refused he was already dedicated to spreading his own magical religion, Wicca. Gardner was absolutely determined to make Wicca mainstream. And that's exactly what he did. He fearlessly wrote articles, appeared on a variety of radio interviews, calmly dispelling misconceptions about magic and witchcraft. And in the process, attracting a whole new audience. While these interviews may seem like no big deal today, back then, especially during the 1940s, it was a pretty risky move. Believe it or not, the Witchcraft Act of 1735 was still in effect, and one could still run the risk of imprisonment up until its repeal, In 1951 in essence up until 1951 to publicly proclaim yourself a witch was illegal by promoting wicca during that time period gardner was actually doing so at great personal risk even after the witchcraft act was repealed britain was still a very orthodox and conservative society Really, any religion outside of Christianity was often treated with wariness and distrust. And anything related to magic or witchcraft was often still met with strong opposition. Even though the repeal of the Witchcraft Act was backed by one of England's most prominent figures of the time, Winston Churchill who also happened to have had a keen interest in matters of the occult. Remember, his popular V for victory sign was suggested to him by Crowley. After 1951, Gardner became more bold in his efforts to promote Wicca, and he freely promoted it to his heart's desire. It was also during this time from 1951 to 1954, that he once again began to refine Wicca, turning it into a full-fledged religious system. He incorporated a variety of texts and beliefs into this system. He borrowed from English folklore, shamanic magic he witnessed during his youth, he borrowed a lot of the symbols from Freemasonry, and many of the rituals and creeds were borrowed from Crowley's Thelema. Most of the popular magical tools used throughout modern-day paganism, whether Wiccan or not, came from Gardner. The athame, the wand, chalice, cauldron, triple moon, pentagram, and most importantly, the Book of Shadows, all came from Gardner. The original Book of Shadows was essentially Gardner's personal workbook. It contained all of the spells and rituals used in Wicca, as well as all of his working notes, marking what did and did not work during gatherings. It was essentially his journal, which he affectionately called the Book of Shadows. In 1954, Gardner officially launched Wicca as a magic-based religious system and published his first official guide to it, Witchcraft Today. He also opened Britain's first museum of witchcraft, all in attempts to call as much attention to himself and to Wicca as he could. In 1959, he got his big break When he was interviewed by the BBC, which he had an audience of 12 million. From that moment on, Gardner was propelled into fame and followers flocked to him by the hundreds. At the dawn of the 60s and the cultural revolution that brought about, Wicca grew in popularity and soon made it into the mainstream. By the time Gardner died in 1964, Wicca had become a thriving global faith. But it was in America where the religion exploded thanks to the hippie movement. By 1970s, it had made its way into mainstream American culture with festivals and was, and still is, one of the fastest growing religions in the Western world. If you are a pagan, Wiccan or not, give a nod to Gerald Gardner, the impish, crazy-haired nudist who started a movement. What's interesting about these stories is it shows how The attitudes about practicing magic and witchcraft went full circle. It started out as this accepted part of daily life, then it turned into the fear, and now we're slowly moving back to the point where it's accepted again. What makes magic and witchcraft so popular in today's society is its inclusiveness. It's also feminist. It has a connection to nature, and it has that really desirable idea for many of that inner spiritual power that is very real. I wanna thank you so much for listening to our little journey through sort of witchcraft history and seeing how things went that full circle if you enjoyed this episode feel free to check out our website nighttideradio.com that's n-i-g-h-t-t-i-d-e radio.com here you can find archives you can subscribe to our newsletter and you can see a list of upcoming episodes which I don't always stick to, but I try. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, any place where you enjoy listening to podcasts. And with that, I'm Stacy, and this is Night Tide.